like this is one of the hardest places with this practice is when it's clear to us that something is inhumane or unjust or wrong. And um, I guess I'm wondering if part of what you're saying is that somehow, well, you said this, that somehow if you were to experience equanimity that somehow you'd be like perpetuating it or part of you'd be culpable, I think is what you said. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the place, to me, that's really the place where I would um, I would wonder if those two are equivalent. If you are to, I mean, having equanimity about it doesn't mean that you don't continue taking action, that you don't see that there's something that is unjust or inhumane and want to change it. So I, I'm wondering if there's like, a, if you're sort of reading that equanimity means that then you don't act, that those are the same thing. And this was part of the conversation last night was, you know, how do we really work with a practice like this? And, and you know, this is, to me, this is the wisdom part of, the, this is the wisdom practice of the three. I mean, they all have wisdom in them, but this is the one that gets more to some of the heart of the Buddhist teachings that are a little bit more, uh, that are harder to, to, to reach um, sometimes. So it doesn't mean that there's a way where, like, even say somebody, can I say that you, the kind of work you do? Okay, so she works with incarcerated people. And so say someone was to be executed, like in California we have the death penalty. So, you know, I don't know if that's, yeah. So, you know, say that that was to happen and one was to totally, um, just feel that was just wrong, that no one should ever be killed by our government. Um, is there a way to still have equanimity in the face of that, even though you might be an activist, you know, trying to prevent it? I, I know, I don't think that's what you do, but, you know, I'm sort of taking it to an extreme case of incarcerated people who would actually be executed. So I don't know. I, I think that there is the potential to actually have equanimity and yet see that something, see that we want to change something, that the two aren't mutually exclusive. But that's a, that's a pretty advanced place. It also yeah. seems like there's a ripe opportunity for you to uh, really be with your own suffering around this and really allow compassion to come forward both for the situation, for how you feel about it, and maybe there's a little bit of judgment that you can't find equanimity about it. I don't know, you didn't say that, but knowing the human mind, it's not, not hard to imagine that's there too. So to have the compassion for the situation and leave it as a question mark. Someone else? Dave? I also really struggled with this practice today. I found it really, really difficult. Um, for me, the challenge was that we were starting with a difficult person first. So often I got caught up in the story of why that situation was difficult. And I wouldn't even get to the effect. I would just caught up in the storyline. And it was actually quite a pleasure. 
So I would be going through that over and over again, and it was really, really tough. And I spent most of the morning, all the morning, half the afternoon doing this. The only way I could figure out to work with it was to, um, if there was a particular person, was to do metta and karuna and mudita for that person over and over and over again. Like, repeat, like, often, like in one set, I did one person for the entire set. And I just repeated over it until finally got to a place where I felt solid enough that I could even begin to attempt to have a pecker for that first time of that situation. And then when I did, then it was possible to kind of work through. But it was it was really a struggle. It was really a struggle. Were you saying that you started with a difficult person? Um, yeah, it says on the sheet here. It says neutral person. What's that? Neutral person. Oh, really? I was starting with a difficult person, that's fine. <laughs> I think I'm very well. But I think what's so you got to say it was kind of practice. Yeah, it was excellent yeah. practice. And what I, what I was going to say was, you you worked with a difficult person to begin with, yeah. but what you did was you had the wisdom to go and to do the mudita, to do the metta, to do the karuna for this person, and probably for yourself as well, mm-hmm. uh, such that maybe there was some room where where Upeka could come in. Mm-hmm. So this is exactly the the approach meditatively, because again. You're not changing that person one bit. Mm-hmm. What you're changing is your heart, how you're holding your heart to that person. And that's where these qualities are actually having an effect. Mm-hmm. So it was it really was good practice, I and mean, it's quite right. And it probably would be good if you do it again to start with a neutral person. <laughs> <laughs> Work, work up to the difficult person. But, but honestly, I'm kind of thankful I did the practice because what it led to was I condensed the uh, Meta, Karuna, Mujita, and Rebecca into my own sentences. Mm-hmm. And then I just, after I sort of had this approach to it, I could almost sort of pick someone, not following the list of benefactor friend, but just sort of pick someone at random. Mm-hmm. And then just for that person to Meta and, you know, go through. Um, Loving kindness and compassion and mudita, um, mudita and, and then finally get to a pekka, and it was possible to sort of have a kind of a, a an ease with it in a way. So it was actually quite helpful. Really. It's, it's a very nice. You're able. I'm just going to repeat it. You were able to to have people arise and then to do with your own phrases go through the metta, karuna, mudita, and then have a pekka arise for them. Yeah, that's really wonderful. That's really how this will get. You'll have your own practice with your own phrases and your own approach to it. And different people, may, you may find there's different ways that you that that's appropriate for you to interact that affects your heart toward that person. I'll get new glasses on the whole. Maybe they weren't bad glasses. <laughs> I'd like to just come back to... to Stephen was just saying that this is about, you know, our hearts. It's not, I mean, it is about external situations, but it's also about our own heart. And when we, tuning back into the proximate cause for this, it's a little different than the others because the proximate cause is, you know, another individual's whatever, suffering or joy or whatever. And this, this upaka is more about, um, really working with the fact that we can't control circumstances and that no matter how much we want things to be a certain way or maybe even we think things should be a certain way, 
that no matter how much we want that and even how much we do actively in the world, it's never, the world is never going to be exactly the way that we think it should be. And that's a hard thing to accept. And if, if our equanimity is dependent on that, we will die without ever having equanimity. Because the world is never going to be perfect according to what we would like it to be. And this, you know, again, this goes back to the first noble truth. So this is where I guess I would just hold that out as a possibility to, to offer that, you know, the possibility that we can have equanimity even if what we see in the world and what we encounter is never, from now until the day we die, ever going to be just the way we want it, or even be fair or right, or those kinds of things. So that's, I mean, that's really, this is really the challenge of the practice, is that um, that we can't ever really count on that happening. Or if we, it does happen, it's very fleeting. So is there the potential then within our own hearts to still find peace anyway? And still be open, and still see the goodness in others, and celebrate their joy, and really connect and be give space to their, their suffering our suffering, our pain. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I had, it was interesting, I committed a little anxious after the introduction of it last night, and I realized somewhere in the night that it was kind of like that old <coughs> religious uh, sort of fundamentalist trying to tie everything up in a bow, kind of, and so then, when I actually started the practice, I was really surprised um, and was working with each of the places, and, I, and it worked really well to do uh, an heir to my own karma, you're an heir to your karma. So I was, it was all working, and I was really surprised by that. And I remember an early definition of um, equanimity being resting the mind before it goes to extremes you can work with that and then I really clung to what you're saying about the first noble truth and I could work with that with being caught in so it was kind of like okay, I didn't think I could but here it's fitting but, and then when I got to other beings that was working okay I was trying and struggling a little bit with uh, the thing about specific people being part of all beings. So I was, you know, like all the beings have ever been to Cloud Mountain, and then all the Buddhists, right? But then when I got to the really harder groups of people, uh, it felt like I just, while it was, I was just flooded with grief. And then I remember that being a near enemy and what you would be feeling if you weren't feeling equanimity. But it felt like it would be abandoning beings right. not to be with that grief. And it felt like, I don't know that I want to be, I might, I might want to be at peace about not being at peace, but I don't know that I want to be where I'm not in grief about what's happening. So that was just a very interesting, and then I took a great long walk. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but this is great. This part of it is you're having equanimity about your own truth. Right? That was the point you couldn't cross. And there was peace about that. That's what I'm feeling. Yeah, well, and I'm also hearing that there was... Um, and there was maybe a lot of um, feeling just the suffering of the human condition and some compassion for that for yourself. You know, that I don't know, I'm sort of making up what you were, the, the details, but like I'm imagining your, the group was like ISIS, you know, or so, you know, it sounds like so mass incarceration, so that was oh, okay. at first. <laughs> yeah, what, what was it? Mass incarceration. Mass incarceration, yeah, so just that you don't want to be at peace with that. Yeah, yeah you two can talk when we break down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and that's, that's where it is. And for all of us, I mean, if we could just be at peace with everything, we'd probably be fully enlightened Buddhists. You know, so to hold that as a bar, it's a pretty high bar to hold. Um, so, you know, let's give ourselves some space to not be there in the very hardest situation that we can possibly find. Right. You know, right. and that's the truth and that's fine. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. I was also struck by, uh, it's happened to me almost with every how different the mind and the heart are just what different realities and I'm always expecting but my mind always is ahead of what it thinks it might, I'm going to experience I'm going to have and it's mm-hmm. almost always night and day mm-hmm. so you're referring to what you, how you thought it would be and then when you actually practiced it, yeah. some of those, a lot of those things weren't yeah. the way the mind thought it would be. Yeah. That's yeah. great that you were able to be open yeah. to actually, you know, finding out what your direct experience was. And it's quite common, actually, in a lot of practice. We have this mental idea, we read about it, and this idea, and it's almost always very different. And, in a way, it's better when we experience it. Somehow there's... It's three-dimensional or some some aspect. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Katie. Anybody else? Andrew? Andrew? That was kind of a hand. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a fixer, I guess. I like to improve myself and other people and that sort of thing. And uh, I was... uh, One of the things I explored was... um, judgments of others and so I was working through people and, and seeing little judgments in my mind about they should be this way they should be that way and I um, I used the phrase I can't fix anyone and for me um, I, I saw that that movement of the critic there as, as this way of trying to correct them put them you know fix them something that I thought should be better about them and um that allowed me, doing this practice allowed me to really release that and to just let them be as they are to realize that I, there was no value in trying to have an impact on them. Their life was going to play out the way it was going to play out. But then I also was able to turn inside and to see that the things that I was trying to fix in others were things that I, you know, rammed down into my own being. 
so my personality's been crafted along those same kind of axes. And that same message internally was really lovely, that sense of there's nothing to fix. I don't have to fix this. No matter how I polish up the personality, it's not going to have any impact on my karmic balance and my life, you know, trajectory. So, um, yeah, the Opeka gave me this sense of steadiness and capacity and really able to just be with those things without having to take any sort of action for me to fix anything, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was also struck as I was doing it that if there isn't a Bodhisattva for Opeka, I would vote for Byron Katie because she just kept coming to me through all this <laughs> message. Mm-hmm. I don't know how people are familiar with her, but mm-hmm. that sort of acceptance of whatever is as being perfect is mm-hmm. actually a very powerful exploration of today. Thank you. You want to summarize that? <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, well, I think it's important to see. I mean, you, you you were seeing, you could identify yourself as the fixer and see the wanting to fix others, and which led to your seeing the inner judgment, the inner critic of seeing what was wrong with them and then wanting to help. And then at some point, that seemed to shift once you let go of needing to fix them and see that that was the approach you took with yourself in some way in shaping the personality that right. sounded. And then there seemed to be some room, some openness, some spaciousness, some acceptance of yourself as well, which led to the, or was part of the Upeka experience of acceptance and openness and truth. Yeah. Then you nominated a non-Buddhist to be a bodhisattva. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll we'll accept Byron Katie as a nominee. <laughs> I'm not so, sure they'll accept that as a Dharmasala or not. Check out the home office and see. So, Andrew, I'm curious. Did you have a sense of um, the actual? an experience that you would call Upeka? Yeah. And how would you describe that for yourself? It was a, a vast kind of mountain-like solidity that, I don't know if you've seen those little birds that are, um, they balance and they have a long heavy weight below them. Mm-hmm. But it was like that. It was a sense of balance and almost directionality up the top there. Mm-hmm. And then this open-hearted warmth sense of connection and openness and appreciation so which for me was kind of the the connection point that made me realize this was still on the right track. It wasn't indifference because it was mm-hmm. still that warm heart connection to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was so much good. truth there too, really. I mean you just had a lot of honesty with yourself about what's true. So yeah, that's really touching. Thank you. My experience with equanimity is like what Andrew's saying is is the isness of life. Mm -hmm. This is what is, and as you said, you know, we're not in control of what is unfolding. And I find I suffer more when I believe that something is right or wrong, and that it should be that way, as we talked about. And then when I can step back and and see this is what is, 
this is what it is. I can't change it. I can have an opinion or a preference about it, but I can't change it. And that's where I find equanimity to unfold in that space of that knowing. What's what's the felt sense when the isness is present? Is it here right now? It's like a yes. It's like a sense of it's like a sense of peace. But there's or and there's a a knowing and a, a passion for life at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I was I was going for a walk today. On the road up to the pond, and you make a left. And you go towards the end, and there's this, this um, house with all these no trespassing signs on it. <laughs> Maybe some of you have seen it. And there's this big, big white board on the fence outside that's spray painted in red no trespassing, violators will be shot. And I know it. <laughs> I noticed my reaction was like, "Wow, we're at the end of a dead end road," and um, and I noticed some judgment come up about the person. Like, this is really needed. You know, why to go to this extreme? And then it switched to um, this compassion for the person. That wow, to put up all these no trespassing signs and violators will be shot. That person, I would guess, I don't know, but I would guess may have some anger within them. And I felt this compassion, not pity, but just compassion for them. And and then I thought about the uh, empathetic joy, and I saw some kids' equipment outside, and I thought, well, maybe this person has children. Maybe they find total joy in having their kids outside playing in the yard. And so it went from this this first subtle reaction of judgment where I could feel this angst in my chest to this softening and then opening to what is mm-hmm. the sign outside of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> great story. So I'm just going to summarize so that it's, it's on the recording. But um, you, So you're talking about how you saw it, went, took the walk, and there was a sign that said trespassers will be shot, and many other signs saying no, no trespassing. And, um, and really being with just what, seeing that you had some judgment, so you were really present for yourself. And just being with that allowed there to be compassion then for whatever is causing this person to need to sort of be so, be extreme in that way. And maybe even some compassion or understanding about their situation with their kids. Maybe they're protecting their kids even. Who knows? Yeah. So this is really, I mean, to me this is the potential of Upeka is that it can allow us to actually be present no matter, well, Potentially, no matter what is happening, rather than moving away or shutting down or um, sort of living within the judgment of what is, it allows for a, a deeper possibility of being actually present and then seeing what might unfold from that. 
and, and imagine, like, say somebody had actually walked out to get the mail or something, and if you had interacted with them in any of those different places, how different it would have been in the later stages, you know? So this is where action then, action that's taken is coming from a different place, too. You know, so so this is where skillful action that's taken from a place that has more presence that can actually be there because there's at least you know some um, equanimity can in in a lot of ways have more connection with the other, and that can actually influence situations more. So I mean, these are this is how all of these things fit together in a way that. Um, Sometimes accepting things actually allows us to be a more powerful change agent. Not that we're accepting saying, well, I, then I'm never going to do anything, but just to, like you talked about the isness. This is what it is. Yeah. And doing something, if you're called, if you feel called to do something without judgment of the person or attachment to the outcome. And what's important here is, as lay people, we, we interact with so much of the world, this is really critical for us, as opposed to monastics, they're in a pretty closed system. And fundamentally, the reason this practice is important is because when we move into the judgment and the, the that line of thinking, that line of reaction, we're closing our heart to ourselves also. We're not just closing our heart to the other, thinking, well, I'll show you, I'm going to, you know, put, put the armoring up. No, we're, we, can't, it's, we can't be in touch either. And that's what's most important. That's why this is a personal practice, even though it affects the world and the people we interact with. Um, I found the day hard as well. Uh, I thought that I knew what equanimity was going in as sort of a peace and a tranquility with things as they are. And uh, I found very little of that today. But uh, what I got instead was it was chock-a-block full of insights. So I really enjoyed it. Um, Specifically, there were a number of people, benefactors, that I was really grateful to have in my life that just radiate warmth and kindness and generosity and, and I'm fortunate I have a number of them and then later on when I got to the difficult people I have a number of people there <laughs> <laughs> and and they do the opposite <laughs> uh, but the, the insight has to do with their Seeing their karmic strings, that was the instruction, seeing that mm-hmm. they are heir to their own karma. All the ones that are benefactors have faced fear very profoundly and, and embraced a dharmic path. Five, well, four out of five. And all the four that continue to spew forth venom and anger and negativity and and worry and refuse 
refused to face their own fear. So anyway, long-winded, but it was a real encouragement to me to practice that the karmic stream, we are heir to our karma up until right now. And then we have a choice in this moment, whether we decide to let the snowball just move us through into the future or with unconsciousness, or we take consciousness and, and practice the conscious thought and conscious action to have a maybe a purified karmic stream or have a better karmic stream. So anyway, it was a, a good encouragement, at least for myself, to continue practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like you could you could see the trajectory. I'm kind of adding this just to see if I'm you know getting it. The the the, peop- the benefactors' lives who were really in the Dharma and how their lives reflected their own. Um, the karmas that they had planted that came to fruition beneficially, you know, that they were living what the seeds they had sown, and maybe the same is true of the, the difficult people. Mm-hmm. In, in particular, all of the benefactors had faced extreme fear, fear of, uh, or despair, or just uh, uh, suicide, or, you know, real fear. Uh, and, and the others just refused and mm-hmm. blocked it all away. Right. Yeah, so this is an ins- inspiration for you. And, and you're really pointing to something important that we didn't really talk about, which is this whole the whole idea of sort of planting the seeds of our karma now. Like what we're doing now is conditioning our own trajectory going forward. And that's really the opportunity. We can't change what's past, but what we're what we're nourishing, what we're watering, what we're you know cultivating now becomes our future karma. And this is really where the opportunity to be cultivating the freedom and the you know cultivating the hard qualities like this that becomes the. That's the karma that we're planting now for the, for our own future as we're cultivating, and there's always the opportunity to be um, more skillful in that. Yeah. Thank you. That's one of the great things about this practice. Uh, for me, I had the realization some years ago that there actually is no end to both the realization and also the digestion, the taking in, the letting myself be affected by whatever transcendent experience might be happening. So it's the fact that there's no end to it is really a great uh, a great piece for me because there's no finish line. I, I can always be digesting, I can, digesting. I can always be opening my heart more. Um, I can always be looking, and it just it just leaves so much room. So what Tina says is important about that, that this is always an opportunity. Yeah, or confronting fears or whatever it is that, you know, as we're doing this now, we're laying the foundation for our own future unfoldment to be in a, in a more wholesome and beneficial way for ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to Dave, uh, not, not that I started with a difficult person first, um, but when I got to the difficult person, like I told you this morning, it was 
oh yeah, no, I got this. <laughs> I got it when I read. Um, uh, came to the difficult person, and all the stories started about um, just the fantasies about this person and, and the difficulty that I have with them, and, um, and, uh, and just this hate, and this anger, and this meanness about us. And, uh, and, and it finally occurred to me that, you know, like, even energetically, <coughs> I might be affecting him on a negative level with all the. Uh, um, but really, it's me that's hurt by what I'm doing to myself. And I was like, okay, well, how do I have equanimity with the fact that <laughs> I'm doing that to myself? And it it felt really cleansing. It felt really purifying. And, and to feel compassion for myself with all that negativity, with all that yuck, um, it's very humbling, you know. It's very humbling because it's like, wow, you know, like, I am what I am. So, you know, granted, I'm hoping to change that, but I don't, I don't get to change it like this. I'd like to. <laughs> That'd be sweet. Um, but I still have to accept myself and have real compassion for what I do to myself. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so she's saying that, that she when she got to the difficult person, she could see that a lot of the, the hatred, the anger, and all of this was <coughs> might be affecting that person, but you knew for sure it was affecting you. And that really was an aha that allowed you to have compassion for yourself in a way that um, may, that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of accept myself with my limitation of, you know, this whole week I've been like, oh, I love the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that part. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, there's um, a, a phrase that reminds me of what you're saying, that um, something like holding on to our anger is like um, swallowing poison and expecting someone else to die. <laughs> you know, so there's a way where somehow it's... You know, there, there can be sort of a, um, like, a, I'll say, for myself, sometimes when I'm doing that, there's a self-righteousness. Sure. It's like, I, I know I'm right, and like, anybody would agree with me. And probably they would, you know, and they might, but it feels kind of good, right? you know? And yet, who's actually suffering in the long run? The, the price that we pay for that is that we actually suffer. Right. So, I mean, this is really where compassion is the response to someone suffering, and you sounds like that really arose naturally. Yeah, it was, it was something. <laughs> yeah, so how, I'm curious, how is, has there been any, what's happening in your relationship with the difficult person that this all started with? Is it the same? Do you feel oh. a little, any different now? Or I'm just curious oh. what's... Oh, that's good. Do I feel different? Okay. Um, no, there's still quite a lot of anger and judgment about that person. I don't mm-hmm. even know him that well. Mm-hmm. He's my nephew, but, you know, he's just kind of turd. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very self-righteous, sort of. One, one day he told me on Facebook that um, there was too much compassion in the world. And, of course, we had a back and forth about that. He's a compassion hater. Yes, he is. <laughs> we, we all agree with you. Yeah. 
but but it's but it's important to also you know what I'm hearing too is there was the aspect of upeka of seeing the truth yeah. of seeing the truth of the situation and seeing that you're holding this anger and maybe hatred and hadn't quite recognized that was even there so that's the first step is recognition and then uh, just letting it be there not having to do anything with it letting it be present because it needs some kind of expression and room that's part of what the compassion and the upeka do is they, they create space where we can have these difficult emotions to be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a big fear about running into them again, so I think that's another one to work on too. Well, then there may be a fear also that the, <clears throat> the anger and the hatred won't stop. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how it'll be for you, <clears throat> like, you know, once you leave here and so on, if, like, there's a way where you sort of seen something that was just running automatically and maybe kind of under, you know, unconsciously before. Not that you didn't know you were doing it, but you didn't get how it was hurting you. Yeah, right. right. And if you'll, if that part of it will be more in your awareness going forward and what that might, how that might affect it. I mean, that'd be, it'd be interesting just to notice that. So, yeah, so let's go on. Thank you all for the comments. So, really what we we have to talk about tonight is just now that you've been through, you know, for those of you who have gone through the progression of the four, it might look a little different than it did when we, on day one, when we first were talking about how they fit together and, you know, how, how it works. And, and um, hopefully there's more of a sense of the way that these four, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upaka, um, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. How how they work together, how they balance each other, how, you know, even just hearing some of you talking about your experience, it's not like there's just one and it's by itself. You know, a lot of the examples that were given, more than one arose just naturally as you were encountering these situations. And this is a lot more what it's actually like in life because we're not undertaking a period of practice. Um, so hopefully this gives you a flavor of both how this can be in our day-to-day life and also how they work together as a, a really, um, you know, as a complete package that can really be used to address just about any situation that arises for us and for people that we encounter. One of the aspects um, of this we can talk about a little bit is what is it like now to start living from a more unrestricted heart? A heart that's more open, a heart where there's room for more unconditional love. And one of the ways that we can react to that when we start feeling that in ourselves is there can be a, um, an opinion that this is way too vulnerable to have this kind of heart in the world. And to borrow a line from the Dalai Lama, he was asked about his own safety and protection. 
and he said that my good intention is my protection. So in the same way, our good intention here with being with the truth, being with the, the equanimity of the situation will allow us to meet it more fully. And for a long time, in my own experience, I was under the, the opinion and held the belief that I could either be vulnerable in my heart or I could be strong in my heart. But the two couldn't coexist. Vulnerability and strength were incompatible at the same time. And Tina and I did this program. Um, I don't even know what the program was anymore, but it had to do with working with horses. Remember doing uh -huh. that? Yeah. And we yeah. would do these different different <coughs> tasks with horses. And she and I were in, you know, worked together at one point. And you had to go out and sort of get these horses to do different things, but you couldn't use any words and you couldn't touch the horses. The horses get your vibe, basically. And That's what's going on. And so you get out there, and sometimes the way you, like, you've got to go out there and get this horse to come back all the way over here. And some of the ways you do it is go part way and sort of catch their eye and then start walking this way. And there's just an energetic, sort of a heart energetic thing that they connect with and they walk over with you. Or they ignore you and walk. <laughs> <laughs> and then the instructor comes over and starts talking to you. And yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I was carrying carrots and apples. So. <laughs> but, but I really got to see with the horses that here's the perfect combination of this pure gentleness and this great strength and how these could completely coexist. And it was really an aha for me to see that, yes, these are demonstrated in the world, in, in nature. And so you really can move into the world and have a more vulnerable heart than you probably thought possible. And yet there is a resilience. There is a protection because you have the Brahma Viharas. To, if, if your heart's open too much and there's something that feels painful, compassion can arise for yourself. There can be space. You can see the truth of it with the equanimity. So this, you know, this all works to help you move into the world with more of an open heart, more vulnerable, closer to unconditional love just passing through you than before. So I've got a, uh, a quote to read. All that you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain in search of pleasure is a sign of that love you bear for yourself. All I plead for you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not really need them. You're beyond. And that's from uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. So tomorrow is um, a day of your choice to practice as you wish with these practices or, you know, really however you would like to practice tomorrow. Um, you may want to continue on with one of the Brahmaviharas that felt really fruitful or maybe that was more difficult or you could um, you know have it be more sort of free-flowing it's really up to you how you would like to use the day and um, 
think that's it. So I think we should go to yeah. Right. So one of the aspects of the Brahma Viharas and from doing this kind of work, um, which a number of you have raised, is the practice of forgiveness. It's really important quality and aspect of this as we're stirring into the memories and the experiences and the hard qualities that we have and the various categories of people. So I'm going to uh, read from an article that some of you probably know. Uh, it's by Jack Cornfield and it's called The Practice of Forgiveness. So just before you, you do that, and this will be an actual practice that you'll do during various segments that Stephen will stop and you'll, you know... Um, you do call and response. Yeah. Is, is that... And well, and you also have some time to yourself. Right. But just to say, this is a wonderful practice and can be done at any time, all the time, you know, it, it may be something that will be, could be useful for you on other retreats and just in your life in general. I've actually used this. I have, I do work within corporate settings and I've used this many times in the diversity work that I do there. And, um, so it's just a really beautiful practice that has a lot of different applications. So uh, the article is, Forgiveness is one of the key arts of a spiritual practice because it allows us to release the past and start anew in life. Without forgiveness, it's always repeating the cycle over and over. And this is a, uh, this is a story, I know a little backstory on this. This is a story where um, Jack Cornfield was in Cambodia uh, in, this is in the article, but he was with a teacher, uh, Mahagosananda, some of you may have heard of, um, who was a marvelous teacher. Was really, I, I really admired a lot myself and read his several books I read. And um, was really, he was sort of like the, the Thich Nhat Hanh of Cambodia. So really this lovable man who was really quite, quite powerful in his love. So this is who Jack was, was visiting with. After the Great Holocaust in Cambodia in 1979, I was there with one of my teachers in a refugee camp. Even though he was warned by the Khmer Rouge not to do so, he set up a Buddhist temple in the midst of the camp. All the refugees were told that if they came to the temple, they might be killed. Nevertheless, on the day he rang the bell to open the temple, 25,000 people gathered around. My teacher began the ancient chanting that had informed everyone's spiritual life in Cambodia before the revolution, and people sat down and began to weep. All he did was recite a simple phrase from the time of the Buddha which goes, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. He recited it over and over in Cambodian and Sanskrit, and as people heard it, they began to chant with him. Those people knew as much about pain and injustice as anyone I've ever seen on the earth, but somehow as they chanted, you could feel the truth in their words was even greater than their sorrow. 
forgiveness is available to each of us through traditional Buddhist meditation. There are three parts to learn, all of which use traditional and ancient phrases. In the first part, we ask forgiveness for having hurt others. In the second, for how we have hurt ourselves. And thirdly, we forgive others who have hurt us. Sit and become aware of your natural breath. When you center yourself, breathing in and out of your heart, the forgiveness meditation begins. Feel the meaning and intent of each word. In part one you say, and I'll say it and you can say it in response, there are many ways that I have hurt and harmed others. There are many ways that I have hurt and harmed others. Knowingly and unknowingly in this life. Knowingly and unknowingly in this life. Many times that I have caused sorrow. Many times that I have caused sorrow. Betrayed or abandoned others. Betrayed or abandoned others. I remember these now. I remember these now. I feel these. I feel these. In the many I have hurt and harmed. In the many that I have hurt and harmed. Others out of fear. Others out of fear. Out of my pain or confusion. Out of my pain or confusion. I ask their forgiveness. I ask their forgiveness. May I be forgiven. May I be forgiven. The second part of this meditation is towards ourselves. We're so hard on ourselves. To sit in this way is to extend great mercy and compassion for the struggles of our lives. You say, there are many ways I harm myself. There are many ways I harm myself. Knowingly and unknowingly. Knowingly and unknowingly. Abandoned. Abandon and betray myself. Abandon and betray myself. Cause myself pain. Cause myself pain. I remember these now. I remember these now. I picture and feel. I picture and feel. The sorrows I have caused myself. The sorrows I have caused myself. And in many ways. And in many ways. Have hurt or harmed myself. Out of my confusion, out of fear, and pain, I offer myself forgiveness. May I be forgiven.
Finally, we direct forgiveness toward those who have harmed us. There are many times each of us has been betrayed or hurt by others. We each have our measure of sorrows in this life. Let yourself feel the way, the ways others have harmed you. You say, in the many ways others have hurt me, abandoned or betrayed me, knowingly or unknowingly, out of their confusion, out of their anger and pain, out of their fear and ignorance. I see these now, and feel what I have carried, and to the extent that I am ready, I offer forgiveness, I release you, I release my hatred, and anger if I am ready. I will not put you out of my heart. I will not put you out of my heart. To the practice of forgiveness, let yourself feel the breath gently in your heart. Again, as if you could breathe easily in and out of your chest. I hope that you can use this practice little by little in your life. It can help you find that place of calm and centeredness and compassion in peace that is the birthright of every human being.